Children of God. I have in my hands here, let me just read this to you. Uh, and you'll be getting one of these in, in, in the mail with your adventurer. Advent Theology Lecture Series featuring Dr. Mark Ginellette. That will be at Cranmer House every Thursday in April, beginning at 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, I think you really will like this. This is uh, something we're going to do to uh, further the theological education opportunities that we offer here. The History of Biblical Interpretation, The Faithful Dead Still Speak. And that is taken from Hebrews 11.4, where it says, And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. Uh, and we're going to feature in these four, each Thursday in April, uh, we're going to feature uh, four of the uh, great uh, saints of the church. Who are they? Uh, who's this first guy? Is that Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Karl Barth? Right. So this should be good. Just give you a heads up for that. And mark it on your calendars each Thursday night in April. Cram my house beginning at 7 o'clock. So I don't want to take up any more time and let Mark, you come up and do your thing. And I'll let you do your, your prayer, if you will. Okay, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, in this, in this morning hour, as we come together to, again, press on in this study of Galatians, I pray that you will do what we cannot manufacture, that you will take human words and sanctify them by your Spirit and communicate your truth to us and in the person of your Son. And Lord, we also know that this morning we've already feasted. Um, we feasted on the Word heard, and we have feasted on the Word and the and the bread and the wine, and so our hearts are and our minds are full. And so, Lord, let that continue on into this hour as well by the grace of your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> um, a word about the, the lecture series. I, I didn't know that flyer was out, uh, but, uh, you know, you're all warmly invited to that. We're, you know, I, I'm... I've told, I told Gil Cracky and the dean, I'm just not very good at um, sexy titles. I wish I were. Um, you know, some people just are good at that. Uh, I, just, I just don't do that real well. Um, but I invite you to that. And, I, and, I, and for those of you who heard the dean read that and said, I'm out. I mean, that's, he's like, that, that you know, no thanks. Um, I, I, let me just warn you. We're, we're going to try, we're going to try, I'm going to try to sort of walk a tightrope in those lectures to do something that's both, um, pressing the subject matter so that there will, you know, there will be a little bit of um, a little bit of challenge involved, but at the same time, bringing the cash value of it, for lack of a better term, down to play, so that we recognize, you know, any time. I don't know if you've ever read a church father. I'm, I'm in the middle of a of a history of biblical interpretation class that I'm teaching at Beeson, and we spent the last two weeks reading through Theodore of Mopsuestia and Cyril of Alexandria on. Hosea and Amos, and we're reading these these uh, these great church fathers, um, and they're not easy. I mean, I just think that, that there there's a, there can be a certain kind of strangeness at play, and I don't want to I don't want to um, steal my thunder from especially the first lecture, but I do want to say all of us. What we said this morning with the Nicene Creed, right? What we said 
was the product of intense exegetical Bible debates in the 4th century and even before that. So we all know that to be a Christian means inherently to be Trinitarian. You've heard me say this in different contexts. You've heard me say it here as well, I imagine. I mean, you have these kind of debates, these public debates between a theist and an atheist. And let's just say that um, the theist wins the debate hands down. I've actually seen these kind of things happen. The theist just blows the atheist out of the water. And now that agnostic who's out in the audience is moved now into a theistic position. Now I believe that there is a God, right? I I I believe that now. Um, This this might not encourage you, but, but, but John Calvin would say, Congratulations on that discovery. You're now one step closer to hell. That's what he would say, right? In other words, the the recognition that there is a God, there is a kind of infinite gap between that and a confession that the God that we name is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Co-substantial with the Father. God of God. Light of light. True God of true God. Um, begotten, not made. I mean, this is a very, I mean, the, the turns of phrase in the Nicene Creed are crucially important. Begotten, but not made. He's begotten from the Father. We are, by the way, created out of nothing. This is the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. Humanity, the world, is created out of nothing, but the Son is eternally generated from the substance of the Father. All that language is embedded in the Nicene Creed, and it's very important. And how did they get there? This is what I think, my my sort of thunder roll here. How they get there is by an intense wrangling with the Bible. And so this kind of wrangling with the Bible, I think, is really important because all of us would affirm the output or the outcome of those exegetical Bible debates. And yet, when we see how the fathers got there in their reading of the Bible, oftentimes at least my own instincts as well, is to go, that's strange. In other words, we affirm that the, their, the outcome of their Bible study, but we look with a little bit of a scant eye or a little dubious about the way in which they got there. And that's really quite important because I don't think we can take the one without the other. Now, so that's just a little primer. We're going to talk about those things in some of these lectures, and we'll do the Church Fathers, we'll do a Martin Luther, Calvin, and then we'll round off with Karl Barth. I brought Bart this morning, not knowing that this was going to be um, discussed. I want to read something to you from him this morning, so maybe there's a, another primer. Um, we did not get through last week everything I wanted to, so can I read to you Galatians 4, 1 through 8? Oh, I had another introductory comment. I forgot to say. The other one is, who watched the Bible series last week? History Channel. Oh, i got to get a better view on this. How many of you watched it? Okay, so maybe like 40% of you watched that. What'd you think? Lacked a lot. Lacked a lot. Anybody else? I thought it was informative. Thought it was informative? Um, I, I read a, a blog post, and the title of the blog post was an Old Testament scholar that I, I read his blog occasionally, and, and his, his uh, title was, Not the Train Wreck I Thought It Would Be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, what, what, what is, I, I actually, I, I will watch it. I'm hooked, right? I'm, I'm into this. And there are, of course, some cheesy elements to it. Um, I was informed as well. I thought it was interesting, frankly, last week, this is on the History Channel, for those of you who don't know about it, and uh, the good news about the History Channel is they're going to run this thing over and over. So if you miss something, you, you, you can see it again. Um, and it's a five-part series, two hours. Um, I was actually driving in Avondale and noticed 
First Methodist of Avondale had a big sign out in, the, in their in the uh, churchyard, the Bible, and it's I guess it's the church series that they're going through. And the way the the poster looked was the same sort of advertisement of the TV series. So I think there's, it's getting a lot of traction. Um, I, I, I encourage you to watch it. Uh, you know, there were aspects of it last week that I found fascinating. Uh, especially with regard to Abraham. And this is germane to Galatians. We were talking about Abraham in the morning. Then we saw Abraham at night, and this, or at least I did in this TV show. It's quite, it's quite amazing to think that somebody, no Bible, no canon, no sort of body of church or you know, Jewish tradition to appeal to. He hears God's Word. I mean, why do we not think he's crazy? Right? He hears God's Word, and he's gone, right? He's, and, and then he moves on. And there were elements of this that I thought were a little bit uh, goofy. Um, I mean, what's the goofy part? You know, here's Sarah. You know, uh, Abraham takes uh, Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer him there. And by the way, the intensity of that I thought came through quite well in the, in the movie. But 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 he and then what is Sarah's running to Mount Moriah to see? I mean, I, that's that's good TV, right? And this is this is the point I wanted to make this morning. I encourage you to watch it, enjoy it, have a good time. Let it you know discuss it. Um, make fun of it, criticize it. I hated watching these kind of just shows with my mother when I was a child because she was sort of the running you know, Bible commentator, editor, you know, like, you know, that's not in there, that's not in there. Um, and, and you know what that's like. Um, uh, David, I'd imagine you're like that. Um, and, and, uh, but, but what's the point? Of, the, the point of that is, um, and how do I say this, you know, I want to put this in perspective. Oh, it's it's better than the Bible. I'm going to be careful. All right, I, now I'm going to nuance this. But these these movies, you think about like Cecil B. DeMille, that's better than Exodus. I mean, why? Well, because you know this, don't you, about reading the biblical stories? There's a certain kind of terseness to them. There are dramatic gaps all over the place. This sort of sibling rivalry between Moses and his brother that takes up, what, half of Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments? I mean, there's one verse in Exodus about Moses being in Pharaoh's court. We know nothing about anything like that. The Bible clips along in such a way that, frankly, frustrates us from a dramatic standpoint. I mean, when you move from the... The Bible is not a ready-made movie script. It's just not. And so when you do that and you move from the Bible to a ready-made TV or movie script, a lot has to be filled in, and it's typically the fill-in parts that are sometimes better than the Bible part, the kind of dramatic stuff that you need, Sarah running to Mount Moriah, as if that scene wasn't intense enough. Um, there's a famous book that was written, probably the most important, I shouldn't say the most important, the most read book on the Old Testament in the 20th century, uh, and it was Bernard Anderson's Introduction to the Old Testament. Any of you know this book? Anyway, in the 50s, 60s, actually 60s, 70s, 80s, this was the book every seminary, every undergrad religion department was using this book. Someone asked one of my heroes, I've heard this story anecdotally, off the cuff, so what do you think of Bernard Anderson's book on the Old Testament? And his response was, it's better than the Bible. I mean, what's the point? The point is, all the stuff that's in there, all that kind of background stuff, which is important and helpful, it can draw us away from the text. And that's always dangerous, I think. Now, so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraging you to watch the History Channel thing, but I also want to encourage you to recognize that the Bible and the, what the Bible tends to highlight, it typically, have you felt this with reading biblical narrative? It moves at a fast clip, boom, boom, boom. And then all of a sudden it slows down. I mean, a whole, that's why Genesis 22 and Mount Moriah is so important. A whole chapter given to that? I mean, think about the years that we have collapsed 
in the book of Genesis, and all of a sudden, Genesis 22 just slows down, right? I mean, that happens all the time in the Bible, and an attendance and a sensitivity to those literary characteristics in the Bible, I think helps show us what the Bible itself is trying to highlight, right? So all to say, enjoy that thing, I'm going to watch it too, I'll be with it tonight with some popcorn and whatever, and uh, go at it. But just, you know, just a fair warning to all of us, I don't want to be a spoil sport, but just a fair warning, a lot of times these things are just better than, than, than the Bible, um, because the Bible often is doing something quite different than the dramatic thing that we're, that we're after. And, and let me re- nuance that one, on one level, um, the Bible is dramatic on its own account as well, uh, but we need to let its own drama sort of come through. That, that was preface. You, can, uh, you want to ask me any questions about that? I just had that just came to me just thinking about that. Um, okay, well, all right, back to Galatians 4. That's Ephesians. So Galatians 4, uh, 1 through 8. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What is it that Paul is saying here in Galatians 4? He's saying again, and we've mentioned this over and over in our series, we live in the overlap of the ages. You were under the tyranny of sin and sin's dominion. And by the way, that is at the heart of Paul's concern and problem with a return to the law and ritual law observance. Why would you go back to the law? The law has been enslaved by the power of sin. That is indicative of the old age. But we now, in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who had been enslaved by the law. We're no longer slaves. The chains have fallen off. We are free men and women in Christ. And now, here Paul tells them, you are adopted in Him. And when you are adopted as children, not slaves, you cry in your own heart, Abba, Father. By the way, it's, I think it's I didn't plan this necessarily, but providentially, you think about the story of the prodigal son that we heard this morning read so beautifully. What is this about the prodigal son? Here the father, the son comes to the father and he says, I want my inheritance now, which is in effect in the first century world saying, I would rather you dead than alive. And so he wants his inheritance, the father, and a surprise one would never have anticipated this given the context, gives it to him. And the son goes off. He squanders his living. He goes as low as a Jew could go, even willing to eat pig's food. And he comes to his senses. He goes back. And what does the father do? The father, who apparently, by the intention of the story, had been looking for him. 
sees him way off in the distance. And the father runs, which, by the way, a father would not run. That would have been disrespectful for a father to do that. But a father, the father runs out to the son. He meets the son. He falls on his neck and begins to bathe him with kisses. And that prepared speech, that prepared repentant speech that the prodigal son had been working on the whole way out, he couldn't get it out. The father, that's it, done. You're back. You were lost. Now you are you are found. That, by the way, is a great illustration, I think, of what's going on here in Galatians 4. Paul is telling the Galatian believers, why go back to the pig pen? You've been there. You were slaves in a foreign land. You were under the power and the dominion and the enslavement, the imprisonment of sin and the law. Why would you go back to that? When the Father has rushed off of His porch to you, run down the lane, showered you with His grace, with His love, and made you a full-fledged son. You're not a slave anymore in a foreign land, in a pig pen. You are a son. You're an heir. And as an heir, you get to say with your own heart, Father. He puts that into our hearts to say, Father, Abba. We're adopted. And I want to emphasize two aspects of this because I think the, the notion, the theological notion of adoption is quite powerful. I remember being in a class setting somewhere and, and a professor said to this large, you know, 80-something student lecture room, how many of you in here are adopted? It was a Christian context. And it, one or two kids raised their hand in there. And then he said, really? And he kind of, then he read this passage right, or something like it. He said, let me ask you again. How, how many of you are adopted? And then the whole, the, everyone raised their hands. And what is it about adoption? There is, and I want to emphasize these two points, there is something forensic and there's something transformative about the reality of adoption, theologically speaking. What is the, what is the forensic? I'm thinking in legal terms here. What is the declarative? You were not a son. You weren't necessarily, or a daughter. You weren't necessarily son or daughter worthy. If we use the image of Ezekiel 16, which, by the way, I think is, there's a lot of Ezekiel in Paul. What's the image that, that is, the prophet uses there? You were a dead baby that had been thrown out into the middle of the wilderness, left for the elements to take care of the problem. This is an, an episode of infanticide. And God passed by you when you were kicking and screaming. It's kind of a gross passage, actually. You were kicking and screaming in your own afterbirth. And Yahweh passed by and He saw you kicking and screaming and He said to you, live. And He made you live. And then He didn't just make you live, He brought you into His own house and made you His own. That's the notion of adoption. There's something forensic and declarative there. We don't make ourselves son-worthy. We are adopted when we were not able to be adopted. God moved toward us. Now, I know that our time is escaping, so this was a point I wanted to make um, a little bit later. But I'll read it now because I think it fits. Listen to this verse in Galatians 5. Oh, I'm sorry, Galatians 4. Um, But not that you have come to know God. Let me rephrase that. But now that you have come to know God. And look how Paul qualifies this. Or rather, to be known by God. Do you hear that? Now that you've come to know God. What I really mean to say is, now that you recognize that you've been known by God. That's the forensic element here. That's the declarative element. You are a son. You're a son because of the work that God did for us in Christ, period. You've been declared that. That's something that we did not do. That's something we cannot do. That's something that He does 
for us in His grace by the work of His Spirit. We're declared to be children of God. Full heirs of all the promises that are found in Christ. All of them are ours in Christ. But there's also a transformative element. So you have a forensic element and you have a transformative element. And this is where Paul will turn the corner again and again and he will look at believers and he'll say, you are full-fledged children of God. You're sons by the Spirit of God, by the work of Christ. You've been declared to be righteous, not because of a righteousness of your own, but because of an alien righteousness, something that's outside of you, that's been given to you, as we heard read this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him to be sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's alien. It's not ours. It's not intrinsic to us. It's something that's given to us on the work and the person of another, namely, Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And Paul will remind believers of this again and again. And then he'll turn a corner and he'll say, now, start acting like children. Start acting that way. There's a transformative element that's involved with this notion of adoption as well. You are children, and now God calls you to act as children, to be children. Who has the Advent coffee mug? Right? Kind of fancy. Uh, there's some Latin on there. I mean, whenever you have Latin around, people just think you're kind of intelligent, I guess. So it's nice to have some Latin around. And what, what is the Latin phrase? It's a phrase that I think, you know, it's, it's kind of a, the bumper sticker at, at the Advent, I'm, I'm getting a sense of. And it's a good bumper sticker. Simula justus et peccator, right? You're at the same time righteous and sinner. It's on the Advent mug. It must be true, right? <laughs> um, well, I think Paul... And the tradition itself, the Protestant theological tradition, the magisterial reformation tradition, would also want to say this, simul sanctus et peccator. So we're at the same time righteous and sinners, but we're also at the same time holy, sanctified, and sinners. Has it struck you reading through a book like 1 Corinthians or even what's going on here with Paul looking at this fledgling church in Galatia and saying, Oh, foolish children, what are you doing? Has it surprised you to see how Paul will um, call the Corinthian believers and address them in verse 1 through 3 as saints? Holy ones in Christ? And you're like, wow, that, you know, that's, got, that's got a lot of, a lot of, sort of uh, force behind it. That's something powerful there. But then you move on in the book and you get to chapter 5 and you realize, Oh my goodness! Someone sleeping with his mother-in-law? That's what well, just makes you squirm. Then you get into chapter 6, and, and what's going on there? Well, you've got believers that are taking one another to court. You mean you're letting the courts solve problems that are inside the church? I mean, Paul can't conceive of it. Then he goes on to chapter 7. He talks about marriage and the importance of marriage. And then he goes on. In other words, any idea that you might have of, boy, I wish we could just get back to the apostolic era. That's where the goal... I mean, that must have been church at its greatest back in the apostolic era. It's like, just read Corinthians. It's a mess. They're a mess. And yet, what are they called? They're called saints. Your holiness, just like your righteousness, is something that's full and complete in Him. Just like we use the term alien righteousness... We'll use the term alien sanctification as well. It's something that's in Christ. 
And because we have been grafted into Him, we're children by adoption. We are fully righteous and fully holy and sanctified in Him. And this is 1 Corinthians 1.30. Meditate on that verse. He has become to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. He's all those things for you and for me. And that's why Paul can say, and now because that is true, both now and eschatologically in the future, you are fully righteous and fully holy in Him. That's why Paul can then say, and now live into that. And how do we do that? By the Spirit of God's work that comes to us again and again and again, not necessarily ever going upward, right? But it comes to us again and again and again and reminds us and tells us and preaches to us that the Gospel is true. It's true. And that your full identity, your full humanity, is not the humanity that you live with in yourself every day, but it's the humanity that's full, complete, realized in Him. And by the Spirit of God, we are called into that reality. It's actualized again and again in time to live into what we already and completely are. Simul sanctus et peccator. We're at the same time holy and, and sinners until the coming of Christ. Um, okay, this was Bart. I brought this big fat tome. He ends, and by the way, um, for those of you who might be interested in the great Swiss theologian uh, who's crawled into every crevice of my being, I'll have to say, um, st- start with the, this volume here, Church Dogmatics 4.1. Uh, I mean, it's... it's uh, it, well, be careful. It might change your life. Um, he ends his whole section on justification by faith alone. The whole section on justification by faith alone. With a small print, long exegesis of the book of Galatians. I, I, I didn't even know that was in here, actually. I, for the study, I, I read through it. And this is how he ends his whole exposition of, of Galatians. By, by turning to the Heidelberg Catechism from the 16th century. And he asks questions 60, 61, and 64. I, you might not like being read to. I don't really like it either. But can, can, try, to, try to tune in on these. Question number 60. How art thou righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith on Jesus Christ. In such a way, therefore, that although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against the commandments of God and have failed to keep them and am always inclined to every form of evil, yet without any merit of my own, God, of His mere mercy, gives me the perfect satisfaction and holiness of Christ. And accounts that I have never committed or had any sin, but have myself fulfilled the obedience which Christ has achieved for me, if only I receive this benefit with a believing heart. Question 61. Why dost thou say that thou art righteous only by faith? Answer. Not because I please God by reason of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and I cannot receive and appropriate it in any other way except by faith. I should just make a little excursus here. 
Very important. Faith is not a human work. We talked about this last week. Faith is the human capacity that God creates in us to passively receive what He has done for us. It's not something that we sort of generate. I just got to believe more. It's not that. Faith is a work of God's Spirit in our own hearts, creating the capacity within us to believe passively that which He has done for us. That's faith. It's not another work. But now listen to this last one. Question 64. But doth not this doctrine make wild and careless folk? Right? I mean, that's I can hear people from my own past going, man, you know, talk about grace a lot, but, you know, just, you know, cur- curve the tail in a little bit at the end. People take it too far. But does not this doctrine make wild and careless folk? Answer, no, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth the fruit of thanksgiving. This is what Paul says in Romans 6, isn't it? So shall we continue in sin because grace might abound? Kind of an abuse of appalling doctrine. And what does he say? Never. Right. Why? Because we were, we were buried. We died with Him on the cross. And we were buried with Him. And we were raised again to new life called to live in that new life. But that new life can never be actualized by attendance to the law. That's human self-achievement. That's going again under the old enslavement. That's going back to the pig pen. Can't do that. But we're called into that because of the work of Christ and what He's done for us, which leads to hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more next week, and I've given a lot this morning, so let's, let's talk a little bit. But next week what we're going to move to is a very interesting, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the work of the Spirit. And then Paul says in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, have you ever read this? Galatians 6, 1, he says, bear one another's burdens. What's another way, what's Paul doing here? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets, said Jesus himself. And so what's Paul doing in Galatians 6? Love your neighbor as yourself. He's giving them a command. He's calling on them to action. And when you love your neighbor, when you bear your brother's burdens, because we can't bear our burdens by ourselves, when you do that, you have fulfilled the law of Christ. Now, I will make an argument, and I'll do it now, and then I will talk about it next week, that the law that he is talking about there is the Old Testament law. And though it's not a new law, it's the old law. But it's the law understood from the standpoint of Christ on the far side of the recognition of our simul eustus and simul sanctus reality. And that when we love our neighbors as ourselves, we then fulfill. But notice, and this is where it gets kind of dicey here. But the distinction between doing the law, called to do it, and the reality of fulfilling it. We're going to tease that out next week because it's quite important, that particular distinction. We're not called to do it because what does Paul say in in Romans chapter 4 and then in Romans chapter 5? If you want to start getting circumcised, you want to start following all the law, then you're going to have to do all of it. I'm just going to tell you, we've tried that before. You will be enslaved, imprisoned to the power of sin again. Christ has made all of that, rendered that moot. You cannot do that. There's no salvation in that at all. But fulfilling the law, it's a different kind of matter. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. All right, so what do you want to bat around? Want to ask some questions? I think we have about five minutes. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so, so given that the debate, when the debate 
So given that you, if you win the debate, it really doesn't win any souls, how do you take this out into the world and not just circle the wagons and talk amongst ourselves? How, how do you do that? Yeah. So there's a question about evangelism then. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. And let me, you know, for all the sort of rhetorical trappings that I attach to that early illustration, let me go ahead and say, I'm not against any of that. You know, I'm God, and let me put it this way. The, people in which, the, the way in which people articulate their testimony and their conversion, I would never correct that. But I don't think it always corresponds to what really happened. I, I, in other words, people will say, I had all these rational problems with, with Christianity. I mean, I just, I mean, I, I, had, I, I had a philosophical brick wall every turn. And then all of a sudden, I heard a debate on that, and I thought, that makes sense. I like that. I, and, and then all my rational issues were overcome, and, and then I believed. I've heard people say that before. I would never correct, you know, I'm not going to correct them. That's great. Um, but I, that's not what happened. I mean, what, what, what happened was the Spirit of God. Well, why? I mean, you know this, right? There's an infinite chasm between proof and persuasion. Infinite chasm. I mean, people, there can be enough proof where people go, my goodness, look at all that proof. But to move toward persuasion from belief that and to belief in, to, to move to that, requires the work of the Holy Spirit. It requires that work. So I would say, you know, use any means that one wants and that, and let's see what the Holy, the work that the Holy Spirit does. That's the way in which I think you go out to the public square and, and you do that, do that work. The other thing as well is the, the text that we heard this morning, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. What are we called on? We are now ambassadors of reconciliation. What do we do? We announce, this is the message, be reconciled to God. In other words, the story of Jesus, the power of the forgiveness of sins, I don't think we need to any way, in any way diminish the force of that simple thing to convert and transform people's lives. So I think talking, just, just talking the story of Jesus and bringing people relationally into our lives. And this is, you know, we have a lot of generation gap here in this room right now. Um, some of you, I imagine, are hardwired linearly and logically in such a way that you really like the kind of syllogism A and then B, which thus means C, right? People are sort of hardwired that way. And, and I, you know, in a way, I probably am too, right? Um, I'm not as convinced, though, that, say, the younger generation is as moved by that kind of argumentation. I think people in this, whatever postmodernism is, right, um, I think within this particular generation, its story, its narrative, its relationships, um, th- those, those are typically, I think, the means by which people are encountering the gospel. Why don't you come to church with me? And don't discount that. Why don't you come to church with me? And, um, you know, and let's see what the, the Word of God does in the hearts of people. I really, I, I believe this. And I think you all do too. I know you do. I mean, the Word of God is alive. I mean, Hebrews 4, it cuts down to the ver- our very souls. Um, so I believe that getting people under the power of the Word, the preached Word, the announced Word, and that's what Paul says, they hear it, the proclamation of it, and then, they, and then God allows them to believe. Mark, if yep. we um, enter into a relationship with God by faith and we walk faithfully through that by faith and faith is the gift of God, what is our role? That's a good question. Thank you. Um, and we need to be clear here. And, and I, and this, is, 
this is Bart's influence on me, okay, but I think it's the right way. Um, do you, are you okay with tension? Uh, because I, I think if you're not okay with tension, um, you're, you're not going to be okay with the Bible. Because the Bible forces us into a kind of held tension, let's call it paradox, not necessarily antinomies, but paradoxes, um, that have to be held together without lessening the one over against the other. So I think what we live into is, number one, the full reality of who we are. That's the symbol of Eustace part. The full reality of who we are in Christ. That is a given. That is true. Never diminish that. Never. But at the same time, we also recognize that there is an aspect of human agency involved here. Work out, Paul said this, by the way, brace yourself, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, because we know that it's God who's doing that work anyhow. See, you hear that tension right there? I mean, get to work. Think about this. Pray. I mean, if, you know, for all the talk about Luther and the law, I mean, it's quite surprising to read Luther against the antinomians or Luther on the, on the spiritual life. I mean, what does Luther, why does Luther say we need to pray? He says, you pray because God tells you to. He commands you to pray. Go pray. Um, so I think that there's a sense in which there is a call to human agency that we, we, we're called to do things. We're called to walk in a certain path, in a certain way. Not in any way to gain righteousness or favor or to make God smile at us. That is already complete in Him. But because of that, we do lead lives of gratitude. I think that's a a really important word in the Reformers. Gratitude, thankfulness, lives marked by thanksgiving and repentance. And there's a call to action there. So I wouldn't want to diminish human agency at all. I think human agency is, is there, but I want to live with those in tension. And I think what happens when you think about legalism or libertarianism, right? Legalism is, you know, sort of an attendance to the law to make God happy because he's angry at me. Libertarianism is, you know, we're safe in Jesus. I'm going to Vegas next weekend, right? I mean, that kind of, those those tensions that we live in. Um, And what, what does Paul call them? Paul says, neither one of those are good options. They're both flesh, both of them. We're called to walk in the Spirit. And when we walk in the Spirit, fruit, the fruit of the Spirit began to come. Now, let, let me let me because I, I heard Andrew Pearson say this recently. I thought it was quite good. I don't remember what context where he said you've been around people who are fruit counters. You know, it's like I see that you have that one, that one, that one. You know, I, we're not talking about that kind of thing. Um, but what we are saying, because remember that parable in Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goat. I don't like that parable, but again, it's in the Bible, so I, I got to deal with it. Um, and and you, um, you, you never gave me anything to drink. You never, you never fed me. Never clothed me. Well, when did we never do that? Well, the least of these. But do you remember when the sheep come forward? You clothed me. You gave me something to drink. Remember what they said? When did we do that? In other words, they weren't, and there wasn't sort of a self-conscious reality of, I did that. No, it just it flowed from the natural reality of, of what, what they were. And so I think that that's a quite, a, quite amazing thing, actually, to recognize that we're called a human agency not so much as a turning in on ourselves. But this is what Christian freedom is. Paul's going to say it in Galatians. Freedom is a freedom from our own selves. And that means a justifying self-righteousness. And it also means, I think, a self-righteous sanctification as well. We're freed from ourselves to love others. Does God need your good works? No. But our neighbors do. I think that's the kind of tension that we feel. Does God need our good works? Of course not. But your neighbors need your good works. All right, next week. Goodbye.